0: Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church Podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. We are in Chapter 22 today. You know, so far, Isaiah has been given oracles to all the different nations that are around Judah. He's, he, he's talked to uh, the Assyrians, he's talked to Babylon, he's talked to the Cushites, he's talked to Moab. He took to Egypt, Philistia, Edom, and Arabia. Now, we we can make the assumption that chances are he did not travel to each of those nations and stand in the middle of their towns and give these warnings to them. So if he didn't do that, then we can make the assumption that there's another purpose for these warnings. And the purpose for these warnings is for Judah. He proclaimed these oracles to Judah. And in turn, they are for us. So what was the purpose? Why Why is he doing this? Why is God having him tell Judah what's going to happen to all the nations around them at this time? Well, he's telling them that because God, the purpose of that was for when they hear what's going to happen to everybody else, they won't put their trust in them, but even more so, the purpose is to help them turn back to God. They're to tremble. They're to repent. And we turn to the God who chose them. The God who created them. You see, the amazing thing about God is God does not pass judgment without warning. God is gracious. God is forgiving. He doesn't just punish without warning first about what is Going wrong. What are they doing? What are we doing wrong? If we go to the book of Revelation, we can see it. The first, there's seven letters in there to churches where God is, Jesus Himself is warning them. These are the things that I have against you. These are the problems in your church. And you had better straighten them out and do this instead, or else this is going to happen. There was only one church that he, did, that he didn't have anything bad to say about out of those seven. If you want to go through those, uh, I did do a sermon series on those years ago, and it's on our church website, and you can go through those, each of those letters. Unfortunately, I can see each of those churches in our churches today and in our nation today. So it's an interesting thing to keep going back and looking, but I want to choose one because this this one just kind of um, this verse kind of gives a good synopsis of of what Jesus ends up telling each of these churches, and that's in Revelation 2:5. He says, "Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, you were here; now you're here. You've fallen. Repent, and do the works you did at first. If not," I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Just as a quick note, lampstand was a symbol of His presence. I'm going to leave you if you don't repent. See, we we have this idea in our head many times because we, we don't experience... Trials. We speak trials, but we don't experience persecution. We don't experience really, really hard, hardships. When we compare it to the rest of the world, I don't think there's anybody in here who's been a refugee, who's had to leave their home because it was being invaded. I don't think there's anyone in here that is suffering from malnutrition, me included. I don't think we've experienced what it's like. So we have a tendency to kind of forget that, you know, we're under judgment too. We are not immune to it. And the people of Judah, the people of God, they're not going to escape the judgment just because they're God's chosen people just because we are christian and i don't like using that term anymore because it's been watered down so badly because we we say we follow christ because we are believers in jesus christ as our lord and savior because of that we think that we you know god jesus is going to get us through it yeah he's going to get us through it but it's going to be like going through fire for some of us but the people of judah they thought they were god's chose they are god's chosen people but they thought that they were had special protection But see, they think because they have the knowledge of God's word that they they get a you know they get a they get a, a mulligan every once in a while. It's a golf term, by the way, for when you really shank a shot and you get to do another one. You don't have to count it against you. There are no mulligans. There no are no, no do overs. In fact, it's the it's the the fact that they have. The knowledge of God is the reason why because just because you have God's knowledge doesn't immune you from trouble. doesn't immune you from judgment. In fact, it makes us be judged even more severely. When Jesus was preaching, He was walking around and He's, he's talking. He's, he talks about these two cities called Chorazin and Bethsaida. And He, he chastises them for their unbelief. But it's not just their unbelief, it's their unbelief in light of the access they had to the truth. And this is what he says in Matthew 11. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And believe me, Tyre and Sidon are being judged harshly at the judgment day. But Jesus is saying it's going to be even harder for you, Chorazin, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. We, we like to think that judgment is a level play, playing field. I'm sorry, it is not a level playing field. Scripture does not say that we will be all will suffer. That people who are being judged are going to be judged all. At the same level, every sin is the same. No, there are some sins that are much worse. We know of one that <laughs> we don't really know. We have an idea of what the one that doesn't, that can't be forgiven, the unforgivable sin, which is the one that doesn't get actually get repented of. See, the nations, in spite of their ignorance, are still guilty. They're not without guilt. We, you and I, we have to live up to the light that we possess. The fact that you know who Jesus is, the fact that you have a Bible and you can read it, just be, the fact that you know that He's the Son of God, that He came and He died for you, and He rose again, and He's coming again. You do not. We, we have no excuse now for not trusting Him. We cannot say, well. You know, God, I, I only read Matthew. I, I didn't read Luke. So I, I, don't, I didn't catch that part. Or I, didn't, I only read the Gospels. I didn't read the, the rest of the New Testament. So look, I'm not responsible. I, don't, I didn't read the Old Testament. I don't know what that, all that's all about. God says, no. You have the light. You are responsible for all of it. We have to live up to it. The nations had been told. You know, Romans says that man is without excuse. That God's invisible attributes have been been seen in nature. They don't have any excuse. But see, there's something different about Jerusalem. There's something different about us. Because we have been entrusted with the Word of God. So even more so, we must... Make sure that we're living up to the expectations that Christ has for us. Paul said in Romans three one verse one, he says, "Then what advantage has a Jew?" He's saying, "What advantage is there to be in a Jew?" He says, or, "Or what is the value of circumcision?" And he says, "Much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God." It's a benefit to be a Jewish, but it's also you have it's a responsibility because you have the oracles of God. You've been entrusted with it. And here we have the Jewish people have the oracles of God. They in their history, they've experienced the presence of God. I mean, he he led them in the desert for 40 years. He parted the race. They saw, saw him part the Red Sea. Yeah, Moses did it, but they knew who was doing it cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. They saw the cloud descend upon the tabernacle and rise. They've experienced God. What's happened? They've wandered away. They had an intimate relationship with Yahweh, and yet they're full of apostasy. Jerusalem was to be a vine that produced sweet fruit for the nations. The whole point of God choosing the the Jewish people was the fact that, number one, the Messiah would come through them, but also that they would be priests to the world, that the people, everyone in in the world would know. There's something different about the Jewish people. And I mean that in a nice way. Something different about them. What is it? Oh, they... They have this God. Well, who is this God, and why does it make them different? That was the whole point, so that the world would see that it's it's, it's different to have a relationship with God. It's the same thing with the church. We, We are to show that we are believers in Christ. We're to live differently than the world is. If we don't, then why would the world even want to hear about Jesus if they don't see it in us? I can't remember who I was talking to this week. It might have been... It was Mark, I think, I was talking to, we're talking about the fact that, you know, when people, Christians, get together, there's this, there's this scent of Jesus on us. There should be. People should be able to know that there's something about us. Jewish people were to be the same way. But they were only producing bitter fruit. I just pray that the same doesn't be said, isn't said of us. So let's look at what Isaiah says, because he's going to now turn his attention to Jerusalem. Isaiah 22. It says, an oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to your housetops? Say, why, why are you up on your housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous, tumultuous city. Exultant town, you're slain or not slain with the sword or dead in battle. First of all, we, we got to understand the topography of, of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is surrounded by hills and valleys. It's a valley of vision. A vision is prophecy. This is the valley of prophecy. This is where God is sending His prophets. He sent Isaiah to Jerusalem. So it's the valley of vision. That's why it's called that. We have the Kidron Valley, the Hinnon Valley, and other valleys that are all over through there. So Isaiah, in his typical fashion, he's again using wordplay. Instead of naming the place, he uses words. He uses descriptions. It is believed that the setting for this chapter is about, about 701 B.C. And it was when King Hezekiah is dying. And he prays and repents and and God actually actually what God does is God extends his life for 15 years. And in the process because why he is repenting and why he was why he was so upset was because the Assyrians had surrounded Jerusalem. So that night an angel of the Lord goes and he kills the angel kills 185,000 Assyrians in a night. So the Assyrians leave. So you are in a city under siege. You've been under siege for a long time, and the enemy has left. So what are you gonna do? Celebrate, right? Woo-hoo! Time to party. They're happy. The invader's gone. He's you know, they haven't been destroyed like they thought they were gonna be. Now I want you to understand. There's nothing wrong with celebrating. There's nothing wrong with having a party. There's nothing wrong with having a potluck. Or a bring in, is that what you called it? A pitch in. I thought we were playing baseball. I don't know. Or we could do horseshoes. See, pitching horse. Yeah, okay. There's nothing wrong with being joyful. There's nothing wrong with celebrating. In fact, I would argue that God wants us to have joy. God has built us wanting joy. It's part of who we are. That's why it bothers me a lot when I when I see people who claim to be believers in Christ who are not joyful. It, it, we we're saying about ten thousand reasons. My goodness, you can at least find one thing to be joyful about. You know, I woke up this morning and I could get out of bed. Whew, that's a good thing. Even more so, I woke up this morning, and I remember that Jesus died for me, took my place on the cross. The desire to have joy and to celebrate is part of how God made us. You know, when when Matthew turned from his sin, the disciple of Jesus, and he he started to follow Jesus, he had a party. That very night, and what he did is he invited all of his friends. Well, guess who, what his friend, who were friends? His friends were—they were a bunch of sinners, they were tax collectors, prostitutes, they were—they were people, common folk. Because what he wanted them to meet this man who changed his life. So they're having a get together. They're having a potluck. Having a good time, celebrating the scribes and the Pharisees look at it and they say, they go to his disciples and say, what is your master doing? Doesn't he know who he's sitting with? Doesn't he know what those people do? And Jesus, knowing what they're saying, because he knows everything, because he is God, we see in Luke 5 what he says. He says, Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. Don't tell that to the medical field today. Um, but those who are sick, it's the sick who need healing, not the well. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's saying, It's okay have some joy in these people's lives especially because I'm calling them to repentance. And what Jesus is doing, he's calling them to repentance in 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 an atmosphere of a banquet, of a party. There's nothing wrong with having joy and enjoying our lives, but we got to understand there's got to be we 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 just we can't seek joy all the time had this discussion with my kids last night. We had an awesome week. I mean, the kids did some amazing things this week, and they really made me very proud. But there have also been, there were times when I got very frustrated with them because they were seeking the same thing all the time. We have to remember the wisdom of the writer of Ecclesiastes when he said, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance, etc., etc., etc. And I don't say that to poo-poo what he's saying here, but we could go on and on. You know what that means. That means we cannot always live our lives seeking joy and seeking fun. There are days we have to work. I can't. If I want to pluck from the ground, I have to plant. I'm struggling right now to plant my winter garden, my my fall garden. I'm just like, I got to get. If I want to have any plants, I got to plant. Right? It's not all about joy. It's not all about having fun all the time. Yeah, I know. Sometimes us Christians have a tendency, you know, me especially. I I I forget about the fun, and I have to tell myself, okay, it's time to go have fun with the family. I got to stop what I'm doing. It doesn't matter that my lawn's not mowed, that my plants aren't planted, my solar system's not done, I'm not, you know, whatever. I need to spend some time with my kids and my wife. There's a time for everything. but We can't just focus on one thing. And at those times when it's important that we're serious and that we're working, that's when we need to work, not play around. That was my kids' problem. Mommy asked you to do these things. You better do them and quit playing around. God says you must do these things. You've got to do them. Among all of Jerusalem, all the people are, are, have all gone to the rooftop. They're celebrating. They're screaming. They're shouting. They're full of joy except for one person. Among all the revelers, there's one that's not full of joy and that's Isaiah. And it's not it's not that Isaiah was unhappy about what happened. I'm sure he was full of joy that God did what he did. The problem is is that God had revealed to him what was going to happen to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not out of the woods yet. Verse 3 of Isaiah 22. It says Oh, he says, all your leaders have fled together without a bow. They were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore, I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord, the God of hosts, has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting up to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to Him who did it or see Him who planned it long ago. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed Himself in my ears Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, is the Lord of hosts. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. Let me just kind of briefly give you an idea of what's happening. Jerusalem's going to be judged. They have been judged, they've been found wanting. Just like every other nation, and just like every nation today, we will be judged. Because what they had done, they had not repented of their idolatry. They had placed other things above God. Now understand, idolatry idolatry is just not about, you know, I'm going to worship this candle. That's not just what it is. Idolatry is when you place anything in your life higher than you place God. They had not repented of it. So Isaiah sees in his mind, he sees what is going to happen. He sees a very detailed, you can see the details in his pictures, he sees in his mind in his writing of what God is going to do on this terrible day when Jerusalem falls. He sees the leaders fleeing. It's not bad enough that David, when, when he should have been out fighting with his men, he stays back and ends up having a, a committing adultery with Bathsheba. That's one thing. But the leaders are not even staying in Jerusalem. They are running away and leaving Jerusalem to fall and leaving the people to be captured. That's what he sees. And we know it happened because in Second Kings 25 we see Zedekiah, who was a king at the time when the Babylonians finally come and take Jerusalem. And he's attempting to escape Jerusalem. So he's he's running out. They go and they run away. He and his his court and his sons run. And they're on the plains of Jericho and the Babylonians catch up with them. And what do they do to him? First of all, they kill his sons in front of him. Then they gouge out his eyes. So the last thing he actually saw was his own sons being slaughtered. Isaiah, back here, in 22, says it's going to happen. That's exactly what happened. They ran. Isaiah is weeping for the future of Jerusalem. He sees this army coming and attacking. They remove the covers from the shields. The the valleys are full of chariots. The foreign army, they're attacking with archers Chariots, infantry, cavalry. He sees the enemy doing all these things to prepare for battle. Every path of escape is gone. There's no way to get out of Jerusalem. So what do the people do? Oh, they're going to put up a good fight then. They're going to get ready for a siege. So what do they do? They check for all their weapons. They desperately prepare for it. They check their arsenal, the walls, the water supply. They dig a ditch in between. They build, they build a wall inside, an inside wall from the outside wall, and they, they fill it with water. They secure the materials that they need for patching the breaches that are going to happen in the wall. And they do that by tearing down houses to do it. They're desperate. But everything they do is in vain because God is judging them. The city did not repent and turn back to God, who is the very one who planned this disaster that is happening to them. This near disaster of the Assyrians, before you know, when, when, when God killed 185,000 of them and they fled in 701 B.C., should have been followed not by partying, but by a national call, to repentance. Lamentation, not jubilation. Their their, their attitude should have been, look what God has done. Now we need to turn to God. We need to be praising God for what He's done, yes. But then we need to repent. We need to have hearts that are solemn. The day of rejoicing will come soon. For now, we need to give credit to where credit is due. But... They're carefree in their attitude. So they're sealing the fate of Jerusalem. And because they're unrepentant, they remain unforgiven. In fact, it says, this will not be repaid. The debt that they owe for their unrepentance will not be repaid even before they die. Even their death is not enough to pay it. They're still under a death sentence. I got to ask: Are we any better? You know, after September 11th and the terrorist attack, it seemed—it really did seem like people were going to start returning to the church. That they were going to turn back to God. That there was a national call to prayer. I've talked to you before about some of the scripture they read that was actually a curse. We should have known then that there was a problem. But in all truth and honesty, I believe our country has degraded even more since then at an even more rapid pace. Even though people seem to be returning to church and faith in God, it didn't last. And the church itself has wandered greatly overall away from God. But I have to wonder as we look over the landscape of our society, if we are not still living under, the de- under a death sentence like Judah was. Possible. I think we are. Now, what happens next in Isaiah's oracle about Jerusalem? He's going to do something that he doesn't do anywhere else. He's going to turn from looking at Judah, Jerusalem and Judah as a nation, as a group, and he's actually going to turn to one individual. It's the only place in Isaiah that this happens. Verse 15. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to the steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, and this, is, this we know from records, that Shebna was, was actually a, a part of the king's court during this time. What have you to do here? And whom have you here? You have cut out here a tomb for yourself. You have cut out a tomb on the height and carved a dwelling for yourself in the rock. This man is setting up, in honor of himself, a sepulchre, a tomb for himself. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wild land, a wide land. There there you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. This guy was the head, the next in line. He was actually the highest official in the king's court. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and I will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. Hmm. That's an interesting turn of phrase. We'll talk about that in a second. and I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house and the offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. He's talking about in that day, in, the, in that Basically, even, even this official like him that he's putting in place will not stand on that day when Jerusalem falls. Now, Shebna was a steward. He had the highest ranking official in the king's court. But instead of faithfully doing his job, executing what he's supposed to do, his responsibility, what is he doing? He is building a monument to himself, a tomb. Having a tomb cut out so that he's ready. And because of his attitude and his lack of humbleness, God's going to deal rather harshly with him. God's going to take a man named Eliakim and put him in Shebna's place. Because while Shebna is arrogant and self-seeking, Eliakim is humble and self-sacrificing. What is interesting is what Isaiah said in verse 22, and I'm going to read it again. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor in his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house and offspring and issue every small vessel of the cups and all the flagons. It's interesting here because I've talked in the past about how we see foreshadowings in the Old Testament to things in the New Testament or people in the New Testament. Images. Examples that point to something or someone that's going to come later. Eliakim was a real man who took Shebna's place in office, but he's also a type. He is a picture of Christ. So much so that the Apostle John will actually use some of these descriptions of Eliakim when he describes Jesus in Revelation. Revelation 3:7. He says, And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Same thing that was said about Eliakim. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little, but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. See, the the second half of chapter 22 points to the Messiah. Jesus Christ. See, well, and what's interesting is while God is Lord of all the nations, and you and I are like grasshoppers to Him. Okay? That's what Scripture tells us. We're like grasshoppers to Him. Why would, why would He even care about us? We're like a grasshopper. How many of us go out and try to find every grasshopper in our, in our yards and try to take care of it and make sure it's okay? And We don't. We don't. We just... Okay, they're there. Don't worry about it, right? But with God, He knows every single one of us. He speaks to each of us through His Word. He accuses us of our sins, but then He points us toward Christ as the firm foundation for our lives. God cares. So in, in light of what Isaiah is saying here, what do we need to do? You know, I, I said, I, I wonder if our nation, as we look at the landscape, if, if we're not still under judgment, which I think we are. So what do we do? Well, first of all, we need to come to Christ. We have to run to Jesus. We have to look to Him. We need to trust in Him for everything we need. Because He's faced it all. He's faced death itself. He shed His blood on the cross for sinners like you and me. That, that's We need to turn to Him. He rose from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father and he holds the keys to death and Hades. We we should trust in no one else but him. Period. Second of all, we need to mourn for our sins and for the sins of those around us. Not just for ours, but for those of around us. Parents need to mourn for the sin of their children. Grandparents need to mourn for the sin of their children and their grandchildren. We need to mourn for the sin that our neighbors are committing. We need to mourn for the sin of our nation. I mean, many times we we forget to even mourn for our own sin, let alone the sins of everybody else around us. We need to take time to be holy when the Holy Spirit convicts us of the sin in our life. We need to go by ourselves in a quiet place, alone, and we need to do business with God. We need to take the hand, of the, the nail-scarred hand of Christ, we need to have Him show us what we've done wrong, and we need to repent of it. We need to say we're sorry and repent. Yeah, back when I was 11 or 12 years old, I accepted Christ. Does that mean I never have to repent again? No! I still have to repent when I commit a sin. Don't turn aside and... In party too hastily. We have, t- we have a tendency to say, God's forgiven me of my sin, what do I need to worry about? I'm sorry, and go on. I, You know, I'm so tired of hearing the term, I'm sorry. I'm sorry doesn't mean anything if it doesn't change your behavior. If you say you're sorry and then turn around and do the same thing again, you're not sorry. If, if we sin against God and we say we're sorry to Him and then we do it again, we're not sorry. We haven't repented. Repenting is turning away and going the opposite direction. The right way to deal with our skin, sin is to take Christ's hand and deal with it. you don't have to do it in public. We go private and do it. We need to dig into the depths of our wickedness. Understand that, yeah, we are forgiven, but we also need to have an appreciation for the fact that we need salvation. And just as Shebna is going to be replaced by Helkanah. We need to deal with our pride. As people of faith, we must recognize that we have selfish pride in ourselves. And, in, and we also have a selfish pride in others to manipulate our circumstances Just for our own advantage. You know, we we, we manipulate things. We, we don't do what we're supposed to do. We have to evaluate our motives and admit to any selfishness that's in our lives. And especially of those of us who are leaders, who have other people who look up to us and who follow us as we follow Christ. We have to teach people, and this means all you parents, too, because you know you have children who follow you, who look at you. It's not just the elders and the deacons and myself as pastor. We need to lead people to depend on God and to not depend on the world. I think in the months and years ahead, this is going to become extremely important that we make sure we focus on depending on God and not on the world. May we never turn to the left and the right. May we always keep our eyes firmly on God. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're watching on YouTube, please like this video as it will help in spreading this message into the global online community. Please consider subscribing to our page so that you will receive notices when we post new messages. If you're watching this on Rumble, please hit the Rumble button for this video so that the gospel can be spread into the What Rumble community. Also, consider subscribing to our Rumble channel. You can also listen to our podcast on Amazon Music and Apple Podcasts. We hope you have a blessed day.